Hello, I'm Amanda Decadene, and you're listening to The Conversation, a show where I talk to the people I find most inspiring about the issues and life experiences that really matter. This week, I'm talking to supermodel, actress, and writer Paulina Pariskova. In this episode, we're talking about our early relationships with fame and older men and how marriages can be so hard to end, and why Paulina has chosen to date again all the while recovering from a life-altering, devastating betrayal. It's an episode that is both really heartbreaking and also has so much hope. So I hope you'll enjoy it. I have to say that were I not speaking to you today, I would have not been able to do a podcast interview because I'm having a particularly difficult day. And um, and I thought, well, you know what? Um, Paulina, of all people, will understand my immense vulnerability today. And if I just start weeping in the middle of our podcast, it will be fine. It'll be And I'm great. okay with that. It'll be great because <laughs> I'll just join you in weeping. I'm also having a really interesting week and a half that's not been the best. And we can just weep together. I will weep with you because I am, uh, I am far from healed myself and it is an ongoing journey and discovery um and it is really you know unfolding as we speak right yes indeed so um i'm so happy to get to speak to you i have been aware of you for so long and have been kind of like watching you from afar and have always felt like you know, you and I have things in common on the surface. And then the more I got to learn about you from hearing you and listening to you over the last couple of years, the more I realized we actually have way more in common than I realized. And so I'm happy to meet a kindred spirit. Well, after I read your book, I mean, obviously we had some similar things in the past, you know, both being on our own at 15 and, and being famous before we were ready for it and then having kids with a rock star, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it turns out that there's actually more. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and thank you for taking the time to read my book. I, I wrote It's Messy because it is so goddamn messy and I just really wanted to embrace the mess and for other women to know that it's okay to be, to be in the process of messy life, because that is how it is. It wouldn't be human nature if your life wasn't messy, right? I mean, is not that a part of the beauty of it, is that you don't know what's coming up? Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, you were on your own since you were 15 years old. And before that, you were, um, you were brought to Sweden at a young age. You moved countries. Um, and from what I understand, you didn't really know your dad or, or let's say you weren't really, you weren't parent. Okay. I don't want to make this assumption. Would you say you were parented? Uh, no, I wouldn't say I was most definitely not parented. I was parented, however, for a small, for a brief period in my life, which was by my grandmother when I lived with my grandmother. And I think that was uh, sort of life-saving. It's what put me into a space where I can at least sort of understand love and, uh, and know what I want and, um, and 
and feel like love is the most important thing there is, but it was not provided by my parents, no. Right. So parenting yourself outside of your grandmother's care. And then, as you said, becoming famous at age 15 for modeling. That's a big experience and a big role to take on when you don't come from uh, you know, a grounded, stable environment. How do you think that experience um, of being famous at a young age shaped you? Well, I think uh, <laughs> I think it was kind of like a band-aid over a very uh, large wound uh, because becoming famous can in so many ways resemble love. You know, you think, you think you're being loved by all these people that you don't actually know and that don't know you, but you are too young and too immature to understand that that's, that it's not actually love because I think it feels like the way you think as a child, love should feel, you know, you feel suddenly embraced and, and, uh, desired and wanted. Yes. I, I feel you that it is it is so hard because it meets the need for being seen and heard when you felt, I don't know if you felt this, but I felt invisible until I became famous. And then when I became famous, it felt like you're saying, like I was getting those needs met, but it's a very surface experience. It, it cannot fill those needs. Nothing can fill those needs other than reparenting yourself at some point and giving those things to yourself. It was such a bummer when I found out that that, that, that fame wasn't going to fix it. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I was like, no, no. What do you mean it's not going to fix the, the giant hole inside me? I know. I, I often said I feel like I was, you know, like a, 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 a cup without a bottom and you just keep pouring water into it. As long as the water keeps pouring in, you can be deceived that you have a full container. But it's when... So when the water level dries up or, or, or starts trickling and you all of a sudden realize that your cup, cup is empty again. When did you first realize that? You know what? It probably took me, it took me to when my fame was receding. And that's mm. when I started going, oh, wait a minute. These people don't really love me. Um, they don't actually care at all. So. Uh, so my cup runneth empty again. <laughs> and that, oh gosh, I mean, listening to you is like listening to myself. I, I know. Mean, that's how I felt when I read your book. I was like, oh, damn, could have kind of written this book myself, except minus the great boobs, because mine are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, that it is, it is exactly that feeling of nothing isn't, nothing can fill it. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, and, and I've, and I've, re I've read that you said, um, you know, you're a woman of very high ego and very low self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, which a lot of us are, a lot of us are who have this wound, right? Because on the outside, we look like we've really got it together. And we function in the world as women who are successful and, you know, married like this and kids like this. And, and yet on the inside, we know how we know this very shameful secret 
which is that we are a bottomless pit and that we are ultimately unlovable. That's what we think. That's exactly right. That because we were not valued and treasured and loved by the original people that are supposed to really just do that, then what, who are you? How worse are you of love? If your parents couldn't love you, then what value do you have? Which is the biggest fear, right? For me, the biggest fear is to be unloved, I think. Yeah. That's mine too. Or letting people see who you are and then they still say no thank you. Well, that's even worse because I know that's, that's a really bad one. <laughs> so when you got married and you spent a long time being married. Well, let's see. I met my husband when I was 19 years old and then I was with him all the way until his death uh, 35 years later. So it's been 37 years since, since I met my husband. Um, and obviously the last few, we were getting, we were separated and we were going to get a divorce. So, um, but I'd say we had a pretty decent run of like 30 years of, of, of marriage, of a pretty solid marriage. I thought that was going to last forever. I never really, I never even conceived of it not lasting forever, honestly. Um, and and I think it would have kept lasting um, had, <laughs> had he tried a little harder. Maybe that was his perspective on me too. My first husband was a musician and my second husband is a musician. And I'm curious as someone who has this similar wound, how being married to a touring musician was for you because I found it very triggering <laughs> at times. Oh, I think I would find it very triggering too. Um, I was, in a way, I was incredibly lucky. When I met my husband, he was sort of at the height of his fame. He was recording Heartbeat City, or he had just recorded Heartbeat City. Um, and it was a huge album. And, uh, and, and he had had, you know, a lot of success. He was married. He had children. And when we fell in love and he decided that, you know, I was the one for him, in a way, it wasn't almost so much love from him. I, I construed his interest as love, but for him, I think it was more of an obsession. He was obsessed with me. And because he was obsessed with me, it felt like the ultimate love. Like he didn't want me to do anything. He didn't want me to go anywhere. He wanted me to be within his circle at all times. I was his sole emotional provider for everything. And I confused that with love. I thought that that's what love was, was to be sort of this treasured object that you won't let out of your sight. And in some ways, did it feel the same way as fame did at 15? It felt like the, 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 the need of being wanted and cared for and adored and valued. Did it feel, it, you said it felt like love. I didn't realize for a very long time that, um, that when you are a treasured possession, as opposed to a person who is loved, you don't get to change 
you don't get to grow, you don't get to get older, you don't, you are very limited in, in your usefulness. You have to be the person that they're obsessed with. And I think that when meets I, their need. Yeah, exactly. And I think when I started growing up, which of course I was bound to do since I was 19 when we met. And when I started growing up and at times perhaps growing away a little bit, trying to find my own way, um, that was a turnoff for my husband. And how did he respond to that? Our relationship was very much uh, a, a sort of uh, uh, Pygmalion, you know, to a certain extent. He took me under his wing. He told me what to wear. He told me what to do. I conformed to his wishes um, because not doing so would risk losing his love and his love was more important to me than any career or any friends or anything I wanted to read or do. Of course, he was the most important man in my life. So I, I did everything as, everything as he desired for many, many years. And when I no longer did, that's when things started going not so well. So what happened when you had kids and your kids needed to feel like they were the most important person in your world? How did your husband respond to that? Well, see, this is where I have to give my husband some credit, because by the time we had children, he had already had four. And he didn't perhaps do the world's best job of parenting those four. And I think when we had our, our children, he felt like they were an extension of him and an extension of me. And therefore, those were the kids he was going to get it right on. And, and he did. He was a wonderful dad. And so both of our sort of, uh, you know, egos or needs were filtered into the children. Our children come first and then it's, you know, then everything else. And so my children, I think, did have a really wonderful childhood and got to know their dad in a way that his other children did not get to know him. Mm -hmm. That's invaluable. Because I actually think that Rick and I did put a really firm base for them too. They got the things that Rick and I never got, which was that unconditional love from your parents. And so, uh, you know, they, they know they're good. So you have... You have stopped that multi-generational wound that gets transferred down from our lineage. Well, I hope I did. And I can guarantee you that I opened the brand new one. Because yeah. that's how it goes. Nobody's perfect. We parent us that didn't make, maybe have necessarily the greatest examples of parenting. Um, I parented by what not to do. Also, I was brought up in Sweden for... Mm, very formative years, my sexually formative years were spent in Sweden. So that's from age nine to age 15. And thank God I had an opportunity to do that. I'm so grateful that it didn't feel great at the time because I was uh, bullied and I had to learn a whole new language and I was separated from everything I knew. But in retrospect, it gave me um, a sort of a female power that I don't think I would have felt in in any other circumstance. Because in Sweden, in the 1970s, all women were equal to men. There, there, there was no question about that. Yeah. So that sounds like an incredible experience. And you feel like you carried that into your life? 
Yeah, I feel like it really sort of, it's what put my backbone as a woman in there. You know, it, it gave me sort of this titanium spine of, of belief in my own power, of, of me being a woman, being able to do everything a man can, but in high heels. A society that surrounded me, that told me, not that I, Paulina, was necessarily worthwhile or, or great, but that I, as a woman, had all the power that a man ha has. So it wasn't an, an individual thing. It was a collective thing that just stuck with me forever. That, and that I, still, I still feel that way, which of course is remarkable then that, you know, me, self-proclaimed feminist, um, goes and marries a guy who tells her how to dress. <laughs> Yeah. How have you made peace with that? Um, it was, it's actually, that was not that hard to make peace with, to be honest with you, because I feel like I wanted that so desperately. I wanted that kind of attention. I wanted that kind of love. I, I wanted everything that he gave me and he gave me a lot for many, many years. And so that part there was a part of my life where, okay, so I didn't get to do the movies I wanted to do and I didn't get to have the career I wanted to have, but I had what I thought was the most important thing in the world, which was love. And so, you know, there was some good, easy years that to me felt filled with love. That's the most important thing is your experience, no matter what is that you have that feeling and that time spent was what you needed at that time. And that's invaluable. Yeah, it's sort of like the universe gave me a break, you know, it let me just, okay, well, here's the comfy couch and you get to sit down here for, for, for a little while and, and regain your strength. And then you're going to have to come out fighting again. I didn't know about having to come out fighting again, but I did get a respite. I did get a break. Uh, I did feel loved. I did have a, 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 a quite a wonderful marriage in, from what I needed at the time. Mm -hmm. It's just, I was just a marriage that couldn't grow. And I couldn't grow. Do you think if you had have had the space to grow that you, you would have stayed in that marriage? So, so my idea of a marriage, again, my, it was like my idea of parenting. You give everything that you saw your parents fail. You know, I didn't have any really positive examples. I only had negative examples. And so I thought if I do exactly the opposite, that's how I'll Surely succeed. it will work. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm incredibly faithful as, as a, just a human being, as a friend, as a lover, whatever. Um, and I put everything I had into my marriage because I never saw my parents put anything into their relationship. So I put everything, you know, like the, the, everything. I would not have given up on it. I'm not a person that gives up. I don't, I am fucking tenacious. I hold on like a bulldog when, when, when I have to, I will just, I will not let go until, you know, until I'm half dead or until they saw me off or, or whatever. Oh my but, God, I said that in my book. Yeah, exactly. I remember Well past that. the sell-by, like the sell-by day. I, I'm holding on well past this expiration date. I was willing to stay with my husband forever, even with things not being great and with him wanting to sleep in separate bedrooms and with him not paying much attention to me. I just, 
needed him to talk to me. I just needed him to, to communicate and go, you know, I still love you. And there may be, and I would ask him, is it health related? Why don't you want me anymore? And he would just sort of go, well, I, I just, you know, you're too miserable and I just want to be happy. Why can't you just be happy? And that's not a, that's not communicating. That's not talking. That's not understanding each other. He just wanted me to smile and kind of leave him to his own mm -hmm. devices. It sounds like you have really incredible insight and self-reflection and awareness of a lot. I'm wondering at what point in your life you started that journey because I can hear it. I can hear so much insight and I, I call it recovery, you know. Um, I hear it. Everything coming out of your mouth is just, you know, is, is wise and reflective. And that's very kind of you. But um, there is no, I call it, I call it learning. And, uh, and there's no, there's no learning without pain. I think unless you are in, in, a, in a great deal of pain, you're not motivated to learn. Oh my God, isn't that the truth? Pain is the cornerstone of growth. I wish it wasn't. Me it is. too. My God. Oh God. It's like, do I have to keep learning? Really? Don't I have it down Can I yet? choose the lesson before I get in the pain? I, I Let's do this. I don't have to go into that pain. No, no. it seems like the only, only time that we're willing, willing to learn. Of course, if you're moderately happy, you don't want to rock that boat and, and, and learn stuff that may rock the boat. It, I think learning really only comes when you are desperate and when you can't live the way that you've been living and it's, it's learn or die. Yeah, it's, sick and, it's like when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you're just like, I can't fucking do this anymore. I, I just can't do it anymore. I thought about you a lot. I have a lot of respect and admiration for your vulnerability and for sharing your journey because there are, if there's one thing I know, that my pain has purpose when it can help other people. Bingo. It's actually what helps to find your way out of the maze. For me, it was looking and going, oh, there's all these other women that are stuck too, and they're actually sort of following me. Now, I might be leading them right off a cliff for all I know, but I'm up ahead. So, so I, need to, I need to keep on walking because we, we all need to get out of this. Um, and there's a sense of community of, of women on social media for me. It's knowing that we're linked and that there is a hand ahead of you to someone who's in front of you. And there's a hand behind you to someone who's behind you. And they are linking with people. And we are, we are connected in a way that is powerful as we try to move forward. And I think it is... It's crucial to my own survival, to be honest. Without those links, I would not have survived. I hear you. Yeah, it's a, it's a, th that sisterhood that uh, one wish was there and that perhaps sometimes isn't there for you at, at an earlier age. Um, 
when it shows up, it's it's incredibly gratifying. It's so weird you bring this up because I was having a conversation with my husband last night about why I skip over my successes in life. And I was saying that because I had a lot of success at a young age, I was very aware of people's discomfort around me because other 15-year-olds were not hosting live TV and earning a lot of money and very famous. And so I wanted to let everyone know, look, I'm just like you. As an adult, I don't even allow myself to appreciate my success and the things that I've worked hard for because I've I'm so conditioned to making other people feel comfortable. I need to work on this still. Yeah, and I do too, because the fact is that we did work really hard and we worked really hard in an age where most kids were having a good time. I mean, or a bad time, but a different different time. (laughs) Yeah, they weren't responsible for themselves and perhaps a whole other family. Um, It so we had this 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 really big responsibility placed on us when we were much too young to be able to take it on and, and, and do it well. Uh, and that doesn't, that somehow doesn't enter the picture because everything people see is just from the outside. So I think the point you raise about needing community and mentorship and sisterhood at that crucial time is so invaluable. It's like, I always felt like there needed to be some kind of guidebook of you know, how to handle that life. Because at 15, your brain isn't even developed, you know, and no, you're, and a yet pe- you're a child. And yet people stay away from you because they don't think you're human. And it's more isolating. And then you get more estranged, more disconnected, more depressed, more self-loathing. It's like, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. And you then- know, then the one thing we, you keep doing is looking for that community, looking for that love. And then you might find it in the arms of men that cannot love you because you will just sell yourself to the, to whoever's presence. I mean, it's not like, it's not even like a highest. It's not even the highest bidder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. I completely know what you mean. Okay. So, so one of the things that I, um, deal with a lot and I talk about a lot and I'm, you know, quite fixated on because it's something that I am still trying to understand, um, even though I also have a lot of experience with it, is grief and loss. And um, it seems to me that given your life and your particular wounds, that's a subject that you are also very familiar with. And um, <laughs> you're raising your eyebrows and be like, no, kidding. Um, I wanted to ask you how, given everything you've said about the importance and the weight that you put into your marriage, how you survived the death, which could is an, an abandonment on many levels of your lifelong husband, even though you were estranged. How have you survived that? How are you surviving that? Not, not super well. Um, first of all, even though we were going through a separation and even though, uh, I could no longer be married to him because I was 50 years old and I still felt like there was, you know, 
a, a life to be had that didn't just consist of making his morning coffee and then, you know, and then that would be it for our marriage. Um, he was the person closest to me in the whole world. I spent 35 years with this man. He was in part my lover. He was in part my parent. Uh, he was the emotionally unavailable parent that somehow had a spot for me. So he satisfied oh that need. Um, and I, I loved him. I mean, I, I couldn't conceive of a life without him. He, and even when we were going through the separation, um, to me, I kept saying, look, you know, I want to be close to you. I want to be able to help you out when you need help. Uh, let's get apartments next to each other so that the kids don't have to choose. Let's still do family, you know, vacations, family, Christmas, family, Easter. Let's just keep sharing everything. We just have to be, you know, separate as, as couples because I can't, I can't deal with feeling so lonely and undesirable as a woman. I, I, I just, I, it was making me too sad. And I thought he was on board. I actually thought he was on board. That's where I, um, that's why I'm a little naive because, uh, I thought that he wanted the same thing. He didn't seem like he was interested in me sexually, certainly, um, or really in any other way, except to be around and, and be nice and take care of his stuff. Make sure he had his flights booked or his coffee or his favorite yogurt. Um, and in return, he, he would certainly help me out too. If I needed something, he would, you know, he would drive and get it. And I mean, he was, you know, I thought he was a really good man, complicated, but a good man. And I thought more than anything that he loved me too, despite the fact that he didn't necessarily want to be a husband anymore. He still thought he loved me the way I loved him. And I think that's where I might have been wrong. Um, because of the, you know, will, because of him uh, writing me out of his will. Now, mind you, not that I would have ever assumed that I should inherit the entire estate. We were getting divorced. Um, I thought I would get half the way one would get in a divorce. The fact that he wanted me to get nothing, th that was shocking. Sh heartbreaking, shocking. Like, they just completely blew up my world and everything that I knew. That is a very serious revelation and shocking. It feels like a betrayal to me. It's, it's a betrayal. It's a betrayal of, of, of my trust and my love and, and everything I put into him for years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. And I have no way of knowing what possessed him to do this. Again, I'm, I've, I've, I've said this before and I'm choosing this kind of a faith-based thing where I think he wrote that stupid will like three weeks before he died. I was at home taking care of him being like, okay, here I am. You know, you'll have the surgery. I'll take care of you. Don't worry. I'll stay with you. I'll make sure you're fine. And he knew what he had done. So I know that he didn't expect to die. None of us did. And I think he would have fixed it had he lived, um, I, I hope. Uh, 
So I really think it was more about business, people coming in and going, hey, you know what, you want her, you want her to get everything in case uh, something happens? You know, don't let her get everything. You know, let's make sure she gets nothing. So I don't, I hope it wasn't really his choice. I hope he just, I know he was worried about the surgery. I know that he was, um, and he was a hypochondriac anyway. And and I think he was scared and, and, and I just hope that he went and did it without actually intending to um, hurt me, but I don't know. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Thanks. It sounds so trite to say, but I would hug you if I was sitting close to you and not say anything, but I am so sorry. It's not trite, thank you. I... I, uh, I appreciate it. And then, you know, of course you have that whole other side of it. I found out after all of this happened and the, and the will was made public that it was in fact made public. They could have his lawyers, they could have been written in a way where this would have never been public knowledge. And I would have to be fighting it in private without acknowledging it. And in a way, I'm kind of glad they didn't do that because at least it, 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 I was able to say how I felt about it. If they hadn't, then I would have really just have to be quiet. Uh, but you know, this, as much as I have found my like new girls, my, my new village on, on social media, there, you know, of course there's times where, you know, and especially in the beginning where people were going, you know, well, you bitch, what did you do to him? No, it could be the thing that actually breaks someone, I would say. If I think about how I would feel in those circumstances and having experienced hate from people at some of my most broken times. What's gotten you through that? Hmm. This is a good question because I have friends that didn't make it. I have friends who killed themselves actively or passively, right? But ended up dead. And or people who lost their minds and never came back. Or people who experienced horrendous trauma and did, were not able to function again. And so I've wondered, what is the difference between me and them? And the only thing I can come up with is that I have some kind of spirit there's some kind of like little tiny spirit in me that will not go out, even when it goes down to the tiniest little flicker. And I'm thinking, I, I don't know that this is the day I'm going to, it's going to go out. And that I have been willing to seek. I've been willing to ask for help. I've been willing to be honest with someone else. I've been willing to, to not give up, to get off the floor one more time some days I have just stayed in bed <laughs> and some days that's the best I can do and it passes and I tell someone I can't do it today I cannot do it today I cannot do it today I just I cannot and I get through the day and I go to sleep and I wake up the next day and Sometimes, a lot of the time, I don't feel like I did yesterday. 
and I'm and I share it. And I don't mean like all over the place. I pick safe people. I put words to it and I take ownership of it and I stop resisting it. And I accept this is a part of me. And every time I come up into that place again, I have the experience of having overcome it and lived through it. Every day that you've had where you feel, you know those days I'm talking about, right? You've got, you probably have like some that stand out for you more than others. But the further we get down the road, the more of those days we've survived. And so you have that backlog of going, fuck, okay. That time when I found out about the will, that time when I fill in the blank, I'm here today, right? I felt like this then and I didn't think I would make it. So I'm feeling that again, but I made it before. So maybe I can make it again. It's, does that make sense? Yeah, it's what I think we were talking about this earlier when we were just talking on emails about it's not what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but that what doesn't kill you makes you understand your strength. My problem is always that I felt like if I wasn't perfect, I wouldn't be lovable. And so I did not take days in bed. I did not ask for help. I just carried it and carried it and carried it. So I, th- I kind of lived, I lived by the, you know, I'll just, I, White knuckle it through. White knuckle it. And I'm still white knuckling. But now when I mm-hmm. white knuckle something, I'm giving myself the credit for white knuckling. I'm going, girl, you're white knuckling it. You can do it. You're white mm-hmm. knuckling it. It's just another white knuckle moment. You you live through it. You know you can live through it because you've lived through it before. That's a that's an appropriate response. Have you done any EMDR for yes, trauma? Yes, yes, I loved. I've done EMDR for a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I was just picking the first thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you find it helpful? Uh, yes. You know what? I found it really helpful with things relating to my childhood. Mm-hmm, me too. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so I gotten over a couple of some some pretty like my car phobia, sitting in cars with closed windows on the rainy days, some weird stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That has gotten easier. I, I need mm-hmm. to do this for my husband's death too. Yeah. It might, if it's been helpful for you and the other things it might be, yeah. I found it very helpful. I, I'm definitely, I'm, give me placebos. Tell me to tap my brain. And I'm like, okay, cool. I have to tell you something. I once spoke to, at a party, kind of drunk, sat next to a psychologist, this lovely woman. And uh, this, this guy sort of walked up of himself sat next to me and started going on about something. And, and me and the psychologist were talking, I think we were talking about insecurities and, and, and being an older woman and the insecurity and all that. And the guy only heard like half the conversation and then sort of jumped in with, well, what do you have to be insecure about? A, you know, you're like on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Like, well, oh yes, of course I should have no further life, but my cover of Sports Illustrated. No, I, I, I get it. I know that. Um, but the, the psychologist kind of got mad at him. And she's like, and she's like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. You know, let me tell you something. And she sort of sat him down and gave him, and I, she, I think she tried to explain this sort of emotional story of like what happens when you're growing up and how you get shaped. And this is what I want to share with you because I found it like it, it's still in my mind all the time. She said, imagine when you're a child, every child, if you give them a crayon and a piece of paper and you ask them to draw a hole, will draw the same picture. 
It's always four walls and the little sloping roof. And then it has a door in the middle and two windows and maybe some flowers and the sun. And maybe there's a mommy, daddy or mommy or daddy, you know, stick figures of the family that inhabits the house. And she said, we all have that. That's, that's where our hearts are. This is where we know we need to be in order to live, in order to survive. And suppose that this child goes to the front door and the front door is locked and the window is locked and the other window is locked, but you need to be in the house in order to survive. And children that have been locked out of the house will find other ways of getting in. So maybe somebody will find a casement basement window and somebody will climb in through the chimney. It's not practical, but it gets them into the house. And guess what? Once you've discovered that the chimney is your way in, you'll always take the fucking chimney. Oh my God, that's profound. It doesn't matter if the door is wide open. You don't see it. You're always going to take the chimney. Oh my God, that is profound. Right. Yeah. And actually, and actually, uh, when someone opens the door, you're like, uh, no, I go down the chimney. Yeah. Like, you're, well, you, you won't even understand what the door is. Exactly. And how to walk through it. It's alien. What, what is that for? Where does that, where does that take me? I don't understand that. Okay. So for you now, having lived your life, let's take the metaphor of this home where you've lived your life with the home that you knew how to exist in, how is it for you now? You just started dating, for example. <laughs> that must be both exciting and terrifying. I would be like, wow, okay, what, how do I do this one? <laughs> uh, how, how is it for you? Well, you know what? It started off being a little bit exciting because I thought, oh, I haven't flirted for so long. I don't even know how to. And, oh, look, there's all these different guys out there. And then very, very shortly thereafter, you find out that just by being 56, there's not a huge market for you. There's not a huge amount of men willing to date 56-year-old women. Uh, I mean, I guess unless they're in their, you know, 70s. 70s. Yeah. Uh, uh, the dating pool is really more of a dirty puddle. And I think I've dated mm. both of the men that reside in it. <laughs> I'm laughing, but that's also sad to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's not good news, actually. Um, a part of it, the, the part that's exciting is, um, is the hope that there's still some hope in me that, you know, oh, tonight, tonight I'm going to go out with a guy that's going to be different tonight. I'm going to, tonight I'm going to maybe find the one that, 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 that I connect to. My dating abilities, uh, are from 1983. So, <laughs> so. I don't really have my shit together. Like, I'm still dating like I'm 19, you know? I, I, I'm like, well, hi there, guys. Uh, you know, <laughs> here I am. And, and I've had friends that have known me for, you know, since I was a young model and 18. And they're like, mm, Paulina, you might want to work on your flirting technique because that, like, club them over the head and drag them home was charming when you're 18. But it's a little intimidating. At 56, um, you're not helping the guys uh, with, uh, you know, being direct 
or um uh or, or be it be actually just being direct being direct being flirtatious knowing what i want I'm like hey you want to come home yeah you know yeah and they're like whoa what <laughs> oh yeah well i mean unfortunately uh, there are a lot of men who are intimidated by women who uh you know know what they want yeah, and I'm definitely finding that out. And I'm mm -hmm. finding out that all of the men that are uh, my age on the market are on the market for a reason. Nobody else wanted them wow. either. Wow. Gosh. So Gosh, I'm going that... to be like, I guess maybe I should be like standing in like funeral homes waiting for the widowers to file out because, you know, that, that might be a safe way to go. It's like, oh, he didn't. You know, at least he didn't, his wife didn't give him the boot because he was emotionally immaturing or incompetent. You know, he's now single because his wife died. So, hey, that's an idea. I guess being open to all different options, right? Yes. I don't know about we know funeral support homes. support groups. Here I come. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. But I feel like uh, that is a story for you. Whoever, whoever is lucky enough to spend time with you, I have to believe that a woman like you, who has done a lot of work on yourself and who is smart and honest and willing and growing and taking responsibility and yes, gorgeous, but all the other things first, I have to think that there is a man out there who is your equal. I have to think that. I do too, because otherwise I would just, I would just start wolfing down those antidepressants and just covering myself in blankets and just watching everything on TV and calling it a day. Uh, for now, I'm still like, no, I'm still trying. I mean, you know, I, I'm, for the moment, I, I am dating. I'm dating one man who is really lovely. Um, but it's like, you know, the, the beginning of stuff and you don't really know where it's going to go. And he's a bit of a unicorn, this man. Unicorns, you know, unicorns are great. They also come with needing their own instruction manual. But you know what? You might be a unicorn too. And I mean that in the best way. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I feel like I could just keep chatting with you. What a treat. Thank you so very much, Paulina. Oh, you're so very welcome. And I'm so glad to get to meet you, even though it's just on Zoom. But I am too. By reading your book, I feel like, you know, again, I feel like I know you. And I feel like I, we're sharing some sort of a karmic bond. We are. And just know that. And know that if we don't see each other in a month, just know that, like, I am, you know, on the path with you and I will be cheering you on from wherever I am. You know what? Same goes for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the conversation, please support the podcast by commenting, liking, and subscribing to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can follow me on social media at Amanda Decadney on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 